0: Chapter Twenty Eight of Beasts, Men, and Gods. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Beasts, Men, and Gods by Ferdinand Ossendowski. Chapter Twenty Eight The Breath of Death. We arrived at Uliassutai on the day of the return of the detachment which had gone out to disarm the convoy of Wang Sot Tsun. This detachment had met Colonel Domogiroff, who ordered them not only to disarm, but to pillage the convoy. And, unfortunately, Lieutenant Strigini executed this illegal and unwarranted command. It was compromising and ignominious to see Russian officers and soldiers wearing the Chinese overcoats, boots and wristwatches, which had been taken from the Chinese officials and the convoy. Every one had Chinese silver and gold also from the loot. The Mongol wife of Wang Tsun and her brother returned with the detachment, and entered a complaint of having been robbed by the Russians. The Chinese officials and their convoy, deprived of their supplies, reached the Chinese border only after great distress from hunger and cold. We foreigners were astounded that Lieutenant-Colonel Mikhailov received Strigini with military honours, but we caught the explanation of it later, when we learned that Mikhailov had been given some of the Chinese silver, and his wife the handsomely decorated saddle of Fu tsiang Chu Tom Bailey demanded that all the weapons taken from the Chinese, and all the stolen property be turned over to him, as it must later be returned to the Chinese authorities, but Mikhailov refused afterwards we foreigners cut off all contact with the Russian detachment. The relations between the Russians and Mongols became very strained. Several of the Russian officers protested against the acts of Mikhailov and Strujini, and controversies became more and more serious. At this time, one morning in April, an extraordinary group of armed horsemen arrived at Uliassutai. They stayed in the house of the Bolshevik Burdikov— who gave them, so we were told, a great quantity of silver. This group explained that they were former officers in the Imperial Guard. They were Colonels Poletika, N. N. Filipov, and three of the latter's brothers. They announced that they wanted to collect all the white officers and soldiers then in Mongolia and China, and lead them to Urianhai to fight the Bolsheviki, but that first they wanted to wipe out Ungern and return Mongolia to China. They called themselves the representatives of the Central Organization of the Whites in Russia. The Society of Russian Officers in Ulyasetai invited them to a meeting, examined their documents, and interrogated them. Investigation proved that all the statements of these officers about their former connections were entirely wrong, that Politica occupied an important position in the war commissariat of the Bolsheviki, that one of the filipov brothers was the assistant of Kamenev in his first attempt to reach England, that the central white organization in Russia did not exist, that the proposed fighting in Urianhai was but a trap for the white officers, and that this group was in close relations with the Bolshevik Burdakov. A discussion at once sprang up among the officers as to what they should do with this group, which split the detachment into two distinct parties. Lieutenant Colonel Mikhailov with several officers joined themselves to Poletica's group just as Colonel Domogirov arrived with his detachment. He began to get in touch with both factions and to feel out the politics of the situation, finally appointing Poletica to the post of Commandant of Uliassutai and sending to Baron Ungern a full report of the events in the town. In this document he devoted much space to me, accusing me of standing in the way of the execution of his orders. His officers watched me continuously. From different quarters I received warnings to take great care. This band and its leader openly demanded to know what right this foreigner had to interfere in the affairs of Mongolia, one of Domogirov's officers directly giving me the challenge in a meeting in the attempt to provoke a controversy. I quietly answered him, And on what basis do the Russian refugees interfere, they who have rights neither at home nor abroad? The officer made no verbal reply, but in his eyes burned a definite answer. My huge friend, who sat beside me, noticed this, strode over toward him and, towering over him, stretched his arms and hands as though just waking from sleep, and remarked, "'I'm looking for a little boxing exercise.' On one occasion, Domojiroff's men would have succeeded in taking me if I had not been saved by the watchfulness of our foreign group. I had gone to the fortress to negotiate with the Mongol sate for the departure of the foreigners from Uliassutai. Joltan Bailey detained me for a long time, so that I was forced to return about nine in the evening. My horse was walking. Half a mile from the town, three men sprang up out of the ditch and ran at me. I whipped up my horse, but noticed several more men coming out of the other ditch as though to head me off. They, however, made for the other group and captured them, and I heard the voice of a foreigner calling me back. There I found three of Domodjiroff's officers surrounded by the Polish soldiers and other foreigners under the leadership of my old trusted agronome, who was occupied with tying the hands of the officers behind their backs so strongly that the bones cracked. Ending his work, and still smoking his perpetual pipe, he announced in a serious and important manner, "'I think it best to throw them into the river!' Laughing at his seriousness, and the fear of Domojiroff's officers, I asked them why they had started to attack me. They dropped their eyes, and were silent. It was an eloquent silence, and we perfectly understood what they had proposed to do. They had revolvers hidden in their pockets." Fine, I said. All is perfectly clear. I shall release you, but you must report to your sender that he will not welcome you back the next time. Your weapons I shall hand to the commandant of Uliassutai. My friend, using his former terrifying care, began to untie them, repeating over and over, and I would have fed you to the fishes in the river. Then we all returned to the town, leaving them to go their way. Domogirov continued to send envoys to Baron Ungern at Urga, with requests for plenary powers and money, and with reports about Mikhailov, Chulton Bailey, Poletika, Filipov, and myself. With Asiatic cunning he was then maintaining good relations with all those for whom he was preparing death at the hands of the severe warrior, Baron Ungern, who was receiving only one-sided reports about all the happenings in Uliassutai our whole colony was greatly agitated. The officers split into different parties. The soldiers collected in groups and discussed the events of the day, criticising their chiefs, and under the influence of some of Domojirov's men, began making such statements as, We have now seven colonels, who all want to be in command, and are all quarrelling among themselves. They all ought to be pegged down and given good sound thrashings the one who could take the greatest number of blows, ought to be chosen as our chief. It was an ominous joke that proved the demoralization of the Russian detachment. It seems, my friend frequently observed, that we shall soon have the pleasure of seeing a council of soldiers here in Uliasetai. God and the devil! One thing here is very unfortunate— There are no forests near into which good Christian men may dive and get away from all these cursed Soviets. It's bare, frightfully bare, this wretched Mongolia, with no place for us to hide. Really, this possibility of the Soviet was approaching. On one occasion the soldiers captured the arsenal containing the weapons surrendered by the Chinese, and carried them off to their barracks. Drunkenness, gambling, and fighting increased. We foreigners, carefully watching events and in fear of a catastrophe, finally decided to leave Uliassutai, that cauldron of passions, controversies, and denunciations. We heard that the group of Poletica was also preparing to get out a few days later. We foreigners separated into two parties, one travelling by the old caravan route across the Gobi, considerably to the south of Urga, to Kuku Hoto, or Kuei Huancheng and Kalgan, and mine, consisting of my friend, two Polish soldiers, and myself, heading for Urga via Zayn-Shabi, where Colonel Casagrande had asked me in a recent letter to meet him. Thus we left the Ulyasetai, where we had lived through so many exciting events. On the sixth day, after our departure, there arrived in the town the mongol Buriat detachment, under the command of the Buryat Vandalov, and the Russian captain Bezrognov afterwards i met them in sein shabi it was a detachment set out from urga by baron ungern to restore order in uliassutai and to march on to Kabdo. on the way from sein shabi bezrodnoff came across the group of poletika and Mikhailov. he instituted a search which disclosed suspicious documents in their baggage and in that of Mikhailov and his wife the silver and other possessions taken from the chinese from this group of sixteen he sent Filipov to Baron Ungern, released three others, and shot the remaining twelve. Thus ended in Zayn Shabi the life of one party of Ulyasetai refugees and the activities of the group of Poletika. In Ulyasetai, Bezrodnov shot Chultan Bailey for the violation of the treaty with the Chinese, and also some Bolshevist Russian colonists, arrested Domogirov and sent him to Urga, and… restored order. The predictions about Chultem Bailey were fulfilled. I knew of Domogirov's reports regarding myself, but I decided, nevertheless, to proceed to Urga and not to swing around it, as Poletika had started to do, when he was accidentally captured by Bezrodnoff. I was accustomed now to looking into the eyes of danger, and I set out to meet the terrible, bloody baron. No one can decide his own fate. I did not think myself in the wrong, and the feeling of fear had long since ceased to occupy a place in my menage. On the way a Mongol rider who overhauled us brought the news of the death of our acquaintances at St. Shabi. He spent the night with me in the Yurta at the Urtan and related to me the following legend of death. "'It was a long time ago when the Mongolians ruled over China.' The prince of Uliassutai, Beltis Van, was mad. He executed anyone he wished without trial, and no one dared to pass through his town. All the other princes and rich Mongols surrounded Uliassutai, where Beltis raged, cut off communication on every road, and allowed none to pass in or out. Famine developed in the town. They consumed all the oxen, sheep, and horses— and finally beltisvan determined to make a dash with his soldiers through to the west to the land of one of his tribes the olets he and his men all perished in the fight the princes following the advice of the hutaktu boyantu buried the dead on the slopes of the mountains surrounding uliassutai they buried them with incantations and exorcisings in order that death by violence might be kept from a further visitation to their land. The tombs were covered with heavy stones, and the Hutuktu predicted that the bad demon of death by violence would only leave the earth when the blood of a man should be spilled upon the covering stone. Such a legend lived among us. Now it is fulfilled. The Russians shot there three Bolsheviki and the Chinese two Mongols. THE EVIL SPIRIT OF Beltis VAN BROKE LOOSE FROM BENEATH THE HEAVY STONE, AND NOW MOWS DOWN THE PEOPLE WITH HIS SCYTHE. THE NOBLE CHULTAN Bailey HAS PERISHED. THE RUSSIAN NOYON, Mikhailov ALSO HAS FALLEN. AND DEATH HAS FLOWED OUT FROM Uliassutai ALL OVER OUR BOUNDLESS PLAINS. WHO SHALL BE ABLE TO STEM IT NOW? WHO SHALL TIE THE FEROCIOUS HANDS? AN EVIL TIME HAS FALLEN UPON THE GODS AND THE GOOD SPIRITS. The evil demons have made war upon the good spirits. What can man now do? Only perish! Only perish! End of chapter